you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 76 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now, let's dig into history. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you for praying for me and my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. We absolutely, absolutely are encouraged by those prayers. Please keep them coming. Uh, today, we are getting into episode 76, which is chapter 15 of my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. This chapter is called The Flood, Giants, and Richard Dawkins. And in this chapter, I address Dawkins' statement that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. It's a very interesting quote. We're going to dive into and give a defense of the gospel from Scripture that undermines his presuppositions. So if you don't have a copy of my book, you can find it on Amazon. And if you do have it or you're about to read it, please uh, consider leaving a rating and review uh, there on that link that is in the show notes to my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. Also want to give you an update on my album that I'm putting together, my new album called Babylon. We've got four songs completely done of the eight songs that are going to be on it. Uh, it's probably about 85, 90% done, just waiting on a couple of lead parts to come in from, from some of the fantastic players, musicians on the album, and looking at a midsummer release. So please be in prayer for that. Uh, if you want to support Reclaiming the Faith, please uh, consider becoming one of my patrons on my Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Baker, and you'll get uh, a couple of videos every month, one being uh, an acoustic version of one of my original songs, and I'm actually going to play for this month coming up, um, well, the month coming up in June, the opening track off my album, it's called Sin Me. It's from uh, the book of Isaiah. So be on the lookout for that. Also, uh, part two of my series on Justin Martyr, I'm going to be looking at his dialogue with Trifo, the Jew. All right, well, as I said earlier, I am blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And if you have any questions about what we talk about here on Reclaiming the Faith or anything on the Fourth Watch or Omega Frequency, please feel free to send me an email at email philsbaker at gmail.com, or you can hit up BDK at omegafrequency.com, and we will be sure to answer those live on Ready With An Answer, which we do on YouTube once a month. All right, well, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can buy for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. So please go, uh, please go hit them up, and they got just a ton of amazing resources there. 
Well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get episode 76 rolling, chapter 15 of my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, and this chapter, The Flood, Giants, and Richard Dawkins. Chapter 15. Richard Dawkins believes the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it? A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak? A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser? A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. But these ideas are nothing new. They pervade the foundational beliefs of Gnosticism. Unfortunately, much of that line of thinking is still alive and well in the new atheistic culture, agnosticism, and as I've noticed, even in the church. Frankly, it can be difficult to reconcile a God who calls himself slow to anger and full of mercy with actions such as the Great Flood and his order of the ban during the occupation of the Promised Land. And if that's where you are today, know that I was once there too. However, as God helped me dig into the scriptures and the historical writings surrounding those events, my confusion vanished and the Bible became more exciting and intriguing than ever before. To begin our quest, let's look at the account setting up the flood story in Genesis 6, starting in verse 1. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. That's Genesis 6, verses 1 through 2, 4, 9, 12 through 13. When I watched the Noah movie starring Russell Crowe, I was glad my ticket had already been purchased for me. As I wholeheartedly agree with the director, Darren Arnofsky, who called his movie the least biblical, biblical f- film ever made. There are numerous examples I could cite, but the main issue I had with the movie, other than Noah being an incredibly violent man, was the role of the rock monsters. In Arnofsky's movie, the rock monsters were supposed to be benevolent angels who came to earth. God had cursed them and turned them into rock monsters because they had abandoned the heavenly realm 
and helped humanity become civilized. People then enslaved many of the former angels, now rock monsters. So the rock monsters helped Noah build the ark and fight off the wicked people. Because the former angels, now rock monsters, were willing to sacrifice their lives to help Noah, God allowed them to be redeemed and ascend back into heaven. You know something is fishy when a director paints biblical antagonists as protagonists. Let's start by examining who these sons of God were and why they did what they did. The phrase sons of God in Hebrew is B'nai Ha Elohim. It is seen again in Job 1, 6, quote, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. It appears next in Job 2, 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Finally, we see B'nai Ha Elohim once more in Job 38, 4-7. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? No human beings were around when God laid the cornerstone of the earth, but the angels were. This means that in Genesis 6, the sons of God were angels who looked down on humanity and lusted after the women. They began to intermarry with them and produced offspring called the Nephilim. The Septuagint the first Greek translation of the Hebrew text made by the Jews in the 3rd century BC states plainly that the Nephilim were giants in the land. Interestingly, you'll find that Jesus and the apostles almost always quoted from the Septuagint when referencing Old Testament passages instead of the Hebrew Masoretic text. I was taught in my Christian upbringing that the sons of God and daughters of men mentioned in Genesis 6 were the sons of Seth, Adam and Eve's third son, and the daughters of Cain. However, no one in ancient Judaism taught that theory. In fact, the first Christian teacher to promote the sons of Seth theory was St. Augustine in the 5th century CE. Every major Jewish writer an early Christian teacher before that time promoted the straightforward biblical stance of the angels being the sons of God. It's a little unsettling when seminaries and pastors teach that Orthodox Christianity began after Constantine came to power, or when Luther and Calvin began to forcefully impose their doctrines on the masses. So, here are a few early Jewish and Christian quotes you can read for your own edification. This is from 1st Enoch. And the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. 
And all the other together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. This is from Philo. On what principle was it that the giants were born of angels and women? Moses relates that these giants were sprung from a combined procreation of two natures, namely from angels and mortal women. For the substance of angels is spiritual, but it occurs every now and then that they have imitated the appearance of men and transformed themselves so as to assume the human shape, as they did on this occasion when forming connections with women for the production of giants. Now, moving into the first century, this is Jewish writer Josephus. For many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians call giants. Justin Martyr, Christian writer in 160 AD The angels transgressed this appointment and were captivated by love of women, and they begat children who are those who are called demons. Now, Irenaeus, around 180 AD, in the days of Noah, he justly brought on the deluge for the purpose of extinguishing that most infamous race of men then existent who could not bring forth fruit to God, for the angels who sinned had commingled with them. Now Commodianus, around 240 AD, such was the beauty of women that it turned the angels aside. As a result, being contaminated, they could not return to heaven. Being rebels from God, they uttered words against him. Then the highest uttered his judgment against them. And from their seed, giants are said to have been born. And when they died, men erected images to them. Of course, none of the early Jewish and Christian writings matter if the New Testament doesn't affirm a straightforward reading of the Old Testament. In fact, both Second Peter and Jude, Jude corroborate the Old Testament account and inform us of the consequence of the angel's sin. This is from Jude. Or sorry, this is from Second Peter, chapter two, verses four through seven and nine through ten. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, which is Tartarus, not Gehenna in the Greek, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, 
And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Now Jude, verses 6-7. through seven. Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, according to these verses in 2 Peter and Jude, the sin of the fallen angels was similar to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in Ezekiel 16, 49-50, God declares, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus, they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. However, the final factor that decided Sodom and Gomorrah's fate was the men of Sodom trying to have intercourse with two good angels who had come to Lot's house in the form of men. You can see that in Genesis 19. Hollywood loves to call good evil an evil good. The movies Noah and City of Angels would have us cheer for biblical antagonists like these fallen angels, as if they were hopeless romantics punished by God for caring too much. The Bible, though, reveals the malevolent conspirators in action and exposes them for what they are. However, it's even more insidious than that. To understand what these fallen angels had in mind when they decided to commit their atrocities, we need to go back to the messianic prophecy made in the Garden of Eden. This is from Genesis 3.15. The Lord had said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. God said the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. In his book, Corrupting the Image, author and biblical language scholar Douglas Hamp demonstrates how this prophecy was the first of several stating the Messiah would be genetically connected to Adam and Eve, who were made in the image of God. Hamp writes in his book, Corrupting the Image, quote, God created man in his own image and likeness. When man sinned, that image was marred but not lost. However, as a result, man cannot be with God in person since man's genetic code and spiritual composition has been compromised or corrupted. The principal verse of this book is found in the declaration of Genesis 3.15. Her seed brought forth the Savior. Satan's seed will bring the destroyer. Ever since the fall in the garden, 
And in manner similar to the virgin birth of Jesus, Satan has been trying to find a way for his seed to become a reality. He almost succeeded in the days of Noah when the sons of God, fallen angels, came down and took women as wives and engendered a race called the Nephilim, which were genetic hybrids, unquote. In the garden, God told Satan the offspring of the woman would lead to his demise. But what if Satan could corrupt the seed of the woman? What if he could alter every human being's DNA so there were no longer any image-bearing humans left? Genesis 6.12 tells us, In the days of Noah, all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth, and only Noah and his family were not found to be corrupt in God's sight. After hundreds of years, the original eugenics campaign led by the fallen angels and Nephilim resulted in the DNA of the rest of humanity being tainted beyond the scope of redemption. Thus, God brought forth the great flood and Satan's first plan to prevent the Messiah's purpose was thwarted. Unfortunately, though the great flood brought an end to all the Nephilim living on the earth at the time of Noah, that was not the end of the Nephilim in the Bible. In Numbers 13, we read that when the Israelites were ready to enter into the promised land, Moses sent 12 spies to scout the quality, people, and fortifications of the land and to give a report of what they had seen. The spies returned 40 days later and told Moses and the people, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large, and moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Before we move on, keep in mind that the spies said all the people in the land were of great size, and Caleb and Joshua did not discount their testimony. So, how did the giant Nephilim hybrids return and cover the promised land? The most common theory is that a second incursion of angels cohabitated with women took place. Genesis 6-4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. However, some scholars suggest that one of Noah's wives could have been a carrier of the Nephilim's genetic information, as Nephilim offspring can be traced through the lineage of Ham. One way to research this issue, in addition to studying Genesis 10 through 11, is to find all the names the Bible uses to refer to the Nephilim. And Douglas Hamp has already done this for us in his book, Corrupting the Image, on page 138. Well, at the beginning of this chapter, I mentioned something called the ban which means devoted to destruction. It is mentioned several times in Scripture, but a good example is found in Deuteronomy 20, 
verse 16 through 18, when Moses told the Israelites, only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Notice that the ban was only to be enforced on these people groups residing in the promised land. These were the Nephilim of Numbers 13, the part angelic, part human creatures of great size residing in the promised land. Thus, the only people God ever called the Israelites to wipe off the face of the earth were the same people he had wiped off the earth with the great flood. They weren't people at all. They were the Nephilim part two, Satan's second attempt at eugenics and the corruption of humanity. I've had conversations with Christians who've used passages like the Israelites' occupation of the promised land to justify wars or killing for whatever reason the person feels is acceptable. Sadly, many of these people were indoctrinated with teaching that simply isn't orthodoxy. It is interesting how Jesus said in Mark 10, 15, Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Failing to read the scriptures as an intelligent 12-year-old child, and instead holding on to the old wineskins of Augustinian and Calvinistic teachings, have caused many to feel justified in destroying people made in the image of God, and others to flat out reject Him altogether." Remember the quote from Richard Dawkins at the beginning of the chapter that the God of the Old Testament is a vindictive, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, bloodthirsty, capriciously malevolent bully? Well, that might make sense if you don't take the biblical stance concerning the fallen angels and the Nephilim. However, if you do take the words of Scripture seriously, the God of the Old Testament is just as merciful, caring, and loving as he is in the New Testament. He desires that no humans perish, but that all come to repentance. And he will go to great lengths to defeat our true enemies who seek our eternal destruction. That leads us to our final stop in this chapter. So how does all of this point us to Jesus? Not only did Jesus and the apostles frequently quote from the Septuagint, but the early Christian writers did as well. It was basically their go-to Old Testament. Interestingly, throughout the first three centuries of Christianity, one of the key figures these writers referenced from the Old Testament as being a typological representation of Christ was a man we know as Joshua the son of Nun. However, in the early translations of the Septuagint, he is called Jesus, son of Nave. When we understand this, we are easily able to connect the dots between many of the stories in the Old Testament about Joshua and the stories in the New Testament about the life of Jesus. 
Here are two examples of the early Christian writers making these connections from a passage about Moses, Joshua, and the Amalekites in Exodus 17. When the people waged war with Amalek and the sons of Nave, none, by the name Jesus, or Joshua, led the fight. Moses himself prayed to God, stretching out both hands, and her with Aaron supported them during the whole day, so that they may not hang down when he got wearied. For if he gave up any part of this sign, which was an imitation of the cross, the people were beaten, as it's recorded in the writings of Moses. But if he remained in this form, Amalek was proportionally defeated, and he who prevailed prevailed by the cross. For it was not because Moses so prayed that the people were stronger, but because while one who bore the name of Jesus or Joshua was in the forefront of the battle, he made himself the sign of the cross. That's Justin Martyr. Here's one from Cyprian in 250. Also in the Acts of the Apostles, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, whom God hath raised up from the dead, by him he stands whole in your presence, but by none other. This is the stone which was despised by you builders, which has become the head of the corner. For there is no other name given unto men under heaven in which we must be saved. Now this is the stone in Exodus upon which Moses sat on top of a hill when Jesus, the son of Nave, fought against Amalek. And by the sacrament of the stone and the steadfastness of his sitting, Amalek was overcome by Jesus. That is, the devil was overcome by Christ. Not only is Jesus the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent, but he is also our ultimate leader who vanquishes our enemies and brings us into the true promised land. So in the midst of a depraved culture, may you be righteous and blameless like Noah and walk with God. May you follow Jesus, the Lamb of God, wherever he goes, even when the odds seem stacked against you. And may you see God slay giant after giant in your life as he triumphantly leads you into his promised land. Remember, remember. Shame
Today